everyone. This is Sean Duberbeck from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. Uh, today we thought we would jump into some of the news around WeWork. Of course, they came out and published their S1, and so it's been a lot of um, of reading into and, and uh, between the lines there, looking at what the future of WeWork holds. So I, I think there's been a lot of backlash, uh, a lot of hate uh, around uh, a, a couple of things. First is the lofty, um, almost new age, well, not almost new age, new age uh, mission of the company to raise the world's consciousness. Um, uh, that's kind of a, a long bridge between uh, uh, from there to, to what their business is today. Uh, and, um, and also uh, a lot of concern about uh, some of the financial dealings uh, in terms of uh, <clears throat> the uh, the licensing back of, of trademarks and the the uh, the ownership of, of buildings uh, being um, uh, leased back to to the company between the the um, the, the executives and and the company itself. So. Uh, I, I think that's that's some of the the we company or we work specific uh, pushback on on the the s one uh, but there are more fundamental uh, financial concerns around uh, I think when when you look at the more fundamental financial concerns, a lot of it is pretty to to what I've seen pretty typical of uh, a a startup, uh, you know, mo- modern startup kind of uh, revenue picture, very fast growth, you know, very very strong year over year growth, tremendous losses, uh, and uh, and and I think some of the concern has been that uh, as the uh, revenue has grown, uh, so have the uh, ha- so have the, have the losses, um, and so there's there's concern about. You know how we, how the we company uh, ultimately achieves some level of of scale. Uh, I remember some very similar <clears throat> uh, concerns uh, with with the Uber uh, S one, and uh, and I think that's being complicated. Uh, and I know Sean, you you have some thoughts on this that I, I think would be great to share uh, about the timing of this. Uh, the the nature of these long term leases that the company is entering into, uh, just as it seems we're we're starting to see some signs that we we may be uh, heading into recession. So so that's definitely scaring some investors. But um, uh, you you have some uh, some thoughts on why uh, that that may not necessarily be uh, all, all bad news for them. Yeah, I mean, I think the the timing and the impact of the the timing on companies like WeWork uh, is somewhat ambiguous. During recessions, we tend to have more startups because uh, creative individuals and and successful executives lose their jobs, and then they they take that opportunity to um, to start a new company that they had often been thinking about for a while, but just didn't uh, didn't want to take the risk, or the opportunity cost was too high. So all of a sudden, in, in a recession, you have lower opportunity cost, uh, and you, you see more startups 
if those startups do well, they'll need space. And so that a company like WeWork could per potentially weather recessions better than, um, than other like companies. Uh, so, so we'll see. I, I think one of the things that, that I have seen a lot of uh, from from companies, and this is what uh, you know, there's some argument about: is we work a tech company? Is it not a tech company? One of the things I see happening today is this decoupling and unbundling of traditional value uh, propositions and. The, you know, the way it used to work is you had a company and you would go and you would take space and you would take office space. And if you needed more space, then you would take perhaps the neighboring space or you would take the floor above it or below it. And, uh, and WeWork has essentially taken that office space and unbundled it and decoupled it and, and allowed it to be uh, and created value in that un unbundling and decoupling. And that's what a lot of uh, tech companies are are doing, if you will, they're taking some of that traditional value chain and breaking it apart. So if you think of like the Ubers and Lyfts, they're taking apart some of that value chain and making coordination easier. And so that's the what they're being compensated for is uh, creating mechanisms to coordinate uh, individuals on these two-sided market marketplaces. And so it's interesting to see that the value that um, you know that that WeWork is trying to create by taking something and then breaking it apart into into different pieces in order to capture value there and and make it uh, make that resource accessible to more entities. And and I think that's another potential um, opportunity for them if uh, if the economy starts uh, uh, moving into recession, which is that companies are going to want to uh, cut cut expenses more established companies you know we we think about we work as being so dependent on startups and you know they absolutely uh, are, that is a huge part of their business uh, but uh, you know they for some time they have been trying to position themselves as being another option for outsourcing things like you know corporate headquarters and remote offices and as companies or larger companies try to reduce their their lease expenditures you know something like we were could offer them more flexibility i mean uh it's just not that simple even in even in a downturn uh companies just don't you know immediately fire people right you know you they they can't withstand that there there needs to be some planning around you know, where they're going to make the cuts and who they keep and how they retain the people that they deem are, uh, deem essential, right? So, so we work as the premier brand in the play, in the space, uh, may, may have an opportunity to uh, emerge as an alternative for some of these offices. I, I saw, I saw one critique of their business that says, Hey, if we if we go into recession, people are going to say, you know, what do I need WeWork for? I'll I'll just work from home, you know. And uh, as someone who has worked in corporate offices, worked from home, worked in co-working uh, kinds of uh, situations, 
again, I, I think that's that's too reductive. You know, uh, particularly if you if you have a small team, uh, there are occasions where you're, you're going to need to be in an office uh, very often, uh, and um, and of course, you know, this this is an option for for that kind of collaboration. And we do know that. Broadly, the economy is moving in this direction, while the gig economy represents still a very small portion of the overall labor market. That's, it is a growing segment of the labor market. So not just, to your point, Ross, not just startups, but also in individuals working for themselves that may want uh, access to certain things like uh, a mailing address or mail service. They want right. the ability to access some of the other benefits that a, a WeWork type environment can provide. They want some type of camaraderie. They get tired of working in the, in the Starbucks of the world. Right. And so they're looking for uh, a change in scenery and maybe they don't want to work there every day, but they want to have some flexibility and ability to do that. And so we, we do know that this is a, a growing piece of the, the labor market. And that's something I think that will continue. And that, should benefit over the longer run we work and i think that's some of the, the value that's uh, embedded in and their ambitious ipo goals is is that uh, they have a lot of tr they have a lot of trends and themes that are that are working for them i uh, do, you, do you think sean that uh maybe one of the uh one one thing that we may see in their future is kind of an uber situation where uh, a new ceo comes in and starts enforcing more discipline and that starts the company on on a, a road to profitability where in the past there there just seemed to be none or yeah and i think what you have with all of these companies is that you've had uh, massive fragmentation globally as you've had copycat companies create very similar offerings in yes. other markets. And what has happened is that often the, the first movers uh, with the benefit of significant financial backing have gone in and acquired these companies or made partnerships. I mean, the, the Ubers and Lyfts as we know them today are in fact uh, the the summation of not just what uber originally was in the united states but also the um the the acquisition of other competitors in other markets both right expand into those markets but also to shut down competitors and to close out competitors before they had a, a really a chance to create a brand and create an experience in those markets so uh you know a very early successful exit strategy for startups was creating a very similar service in a, a different market and then selling out to who, whoever was becoming the biggest in that that marketplace uber definitely fit that definition and and the we company we work fits that definition as well and you can see in uh, the s1 and and some of the structure how they have these joint ventures around the world with with uh, companies that were creating similar values. I was in India last month and uh, was in a WeWork and saw many of the, the WeWorks in India uh, and they seem to be operating quite successful. And I, I actually think an opportunity for companies like WeWork is to start to expand 
outside of urban, heavy urban settings. Uh, so you see them in the, the downtown areas of, of major urban settings. And I think there's probably some opportunity to move into smaller office buildings mm. that are further outside of the city centers that could cater to uh, in independent uh, individuals and, and others who are operating in the gig economy and are looking for office space on a, on a, you know, semi-regular basis or, or a temporary basis even. Yeah, I uh, was aware of one company that kind of blended the co-working and incubator model, and they were going after mid-sized cities uh, in the U.S., and it, it seemed like a, a pretty good plan, but uh, unfortunately, issues unrelated to the business model uh, kind of brought things uh, crashing down. Um, but uh, but do, do you think that there's a, uh, so with Uber, there's a network effect, right? You, you have lots of users, lots of drivers, you, you achieve saturation. Uh, you know, you mentioned the urban centers. I believe that WeWork uh, is now the largest owner of uh, real estate in Manhattan, I have read. They're taking over from uh, New York University, which, uh, which held, that, uh, uh, held that standing for, for many, many years. Um, is there benefit to having WeWork in India, you know, WeWork being dominant in India, as well as, uh, you know, San Francisco or Dallas or, or you know, any other city or I guess, I guess if you, if you're a global corporation and you have employees around the world, it's nice to have a single source. Um, so that's, that's perhaps one argument. Yeah. If you, if you have small individual, um, uh, you know, so you have small individual staffs in some of these other markets and then you have them working in that WeWork environment. And actually, while I was in, we work in uh, Delhi, one of the WeWorks in, in uh, Delhi, I was speaking with some of the individuals there and many of them work for U.S. tech companies and they right. were working in that WeWork space or in the building uh, that WeWork was in. WeWork didn't have the, in the entire building as far as I could tell, but just a couple of the floors. And so they were in that building and, and, um, and so it, that was an interesting setup where these U.S. tech companies might not need an entire office building there. They were able to easily build the infrastructure that they needed. And, and I, there's got to be some cost advantages for some of these companies where they're building a remote workforce or a distributed workforce, and they don't have to invest in the physical infrastructure that they would need to invest in in order to to support a, a workforce. The old model would have been, you've got an IT person there who's building out the IT infrastructure. You've got somebody who's got to build out the physical infrastructure. So the desks, the chairs, the, you know, the, um, the shared common areas, all, all of that has to be managed by somebody. And so often you've got somebody on staff who's who's doing that and in a we work environment you're able to outsource some of those pieces and so there, there probably is some benefit to um to having that in, in that you have a u.s tech company who's hiring people in india and they know what they're getting with we work right uh you know there's some assurance that that they're getting there and, and that probably helps so there is some return to the brand 
that will permeate glo global markets. Great. Uh, other news we saw um, AT&T and Verizon starting slowly to T-Mobile. Uh, 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 sorry, T-Mobile to um, push out um, tools to help combat robocalls. This was, of course, something the FCC pushed last May, uh, uh, this this past May, and uh, we're, we're starting to see some of those tools uh, become implemented. The first steps of of hopefully many more to come as we start to combat robocalls. So I, I have to take a moment to, uh, to just mention what the technology is. Uh, so it's it's referred to as shaken and stir, uh, which uh, of course is a, a fun reference to uh, for for fans of uh, of James Bond, uh, but. Um, that is uh, is where the sexiness breaks down. Uh, SHAKEN stands for Secure Handling of Asserted Information Using Tokens. That's the Ken. And STIR is Secure Telephony Identity Revisited. So uh, definitely two of the um, uh, most strained uh, acronyms I, I've come across in a while, but uh, but the idea is that it, it is, as you mentioned, protection from uh, a, a way to authenticate uh, callers uh, within the cellular uh, network, uh, which should hopefully result in um, fewer robocalls, or as AT&T put it in uh, one of their statements that I read, more confidence uh, on on the part of the consumer uh, that the caller identification is correct uh, as opposed to today where you see lots of calls from your local area code and it turns out to be you know some some scammer or uh, uh, or, or, or robocall so um, I, I think that the telecom companies are uh, being clear that this won't necessarily solve the issue and uh, or at least not solve it completely, but it should help the issue. Yeah, and there and there's obviously a lot more to come with that. I mean, I think you know what you see today is uh, many consumers are not picking up their phones if they don't recognize the the call. I I know my my own mom uh, wouldn't pick up my call if she didn't recognize the number or see my uh, name pop up because she she tends to be the victim of many robocalls. She's been uh, added to too many lists so uh, probably a, uh, it'll be interesting to see if this uh, dents the number of, of spoofed robocalls and helps with that or if it's just a, a little band-aid on much bigger problem yeah it's definitely has a, a regulatory component uh, and uh, I think for many years uh, do not call uh, do not call this was fairly effective yeah. at least in the landline world uh and um you know we'll have to see if something similar takes hold here uh i know sean you, you know you've mentioned several times about you know how relevant is this even really for uh you know the the younger generation gen z you know what what's what is this phone call thing that that you speak of right it's uh uh no, nobody nobody speaks uh on voice or, or maybe it's more accurate to say they avoid it if they can 
but you know very often it's um it's it's not always possible to to completely avoid uh having having a phone conversation or at some point you know text or or other media just break down and and it just becomes more efficient to to have a voice call so so it is important despite the technology usage trends i think for for the carriers to to improve on this uh in in the name of customer satisfaction and you know usage of their product yeah it'll be interesting to see and then i think just uh kind of in closing the big news over the last uh, week has been economic indicators pointing to recessions and and um i if we do start to see the economy we can further, I mean, a lot, if you look at some of the underlying indicators of, of the economy, labor markets and other things are still holding up well, but if we do start to see some of those things weaken, then I think what we're also looking at is a, a, a real, the, the first real test of a down economy for a lot of these companies. And so mm. that will provide a lot of insights in how these companies behave. We, we talked just a minute ago about WeWork, but the same will be true with, uh, you know, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world or any of the other um, tech companies that ha have really grown during this expansion over the last 10 or 11 years and haven't really had uh, a, a real test of their underlying business model in a down economy. Do you think, I mean, how do you think it might compare to the, the, the bubble bursting in uh, uh, 2001? Uh, I mean, it seems to me that the, uh, the scale is just much different now for, for many of these companies that they uh, have taken bigger bets. They've racked up it seems to me even bigger losses uh, in, in many cases. Some of them I think have gotten through the IPO window uh, a bit earlier than say pets.com did or webvan.com did. Uh, does that insulate them better uh, against a, a downturn um, or, or, you know, because they're, they're just so highly leveraged, uh, does it make them more vulnerable? Yeah, I think what we'll see happen is the access to capital could become more more uh, difficult. So mm -hmm. uh, investors become much more discerning in a down market. The, the ability to get capital and then to uh, to provide capital is harder. So companies will will ha um, in the startup space. You obviously see them getting much closer to profitability or, or even into profitability when we see some of those subsequent uh, levels of, of investment and capital and certainly moving into profitability before they, they go public and seek uh, finance from the, from the public market. Um, and I think you'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens with with some of the other large companies. I mean, remember in the last downturn, you had companies like Amazon that were issuing bonds mm -hmm. to, uh, to uh, secure their financial position. So you could easily imagine a world uh, like that where Uber and Lyft start to issue bonds in order to cover the, their uh, operating costs and, and their, their costs. And so, you, I mean, part, part of the move to IPO is to get access to this capital so that you have cash and can weather storms 
and can cover your burn rates and other things like that. You can, um, you know, continue to expand, but also that you can continue to operate in a, a down economy and, and take advantage of some of the opportunities that might arise. And so I, I think those are some of the forces that will, will be at play. It'll be much harder for some of these smaller companies to get access to capital. And, and so we'll, we'll see the dynamics change depending upon the severity of, of a downturn. Right. I, I think it would also be interesting to see how it affects the, the big five, um, you know they're they're all vulnerable, of course, in different ways. Uh, Apple, uh, as as a premium product provider, you know might might find people are cutting back on what they're willing to spend on a phone. Obviously, there's there's evidence of that already. Uh, Amazon, you know, just a general spending downturn would hurt them. Uh, although the AWS business might might still. Um, uh, do well as as companies seek more efficiency in their infrastructure. I think you know F- Facebook and Google to me are the most interesting ones because advertising is just so uh, you know so so variable. Uh, ad spending is you know one of the first things to take a hit. I, I think uh, during a downturn, and uh, uh, I, I think there's an argument that they might see even more of a shift. Uh, because uh, toward toward their uh, advertising options because it's that much more measurable and there'll be that much more of a uh, a call for efficiency on on the part of marketers Uh, but um, uh, you know more more broadly uh, I I think it would be kind of I think it would be a challenge for them. Well, I think one of the things that will help advertisers over the next, say, 14 or, or 16 months is that we are uh, moving ever deeper into an election cycle. Mm. And so mm. right. you tend to see advertising do well in election cycles. Uh, obviously, candidates have money to, to spend. They have money to burn because it's not their money. And so <laughs> they uh, are they'll spend that on advertising, especially, um, uh, you know, when they, when they have it. And so what that ends up doing is bidding up the price of advertising and crowding out other advertisers during those periods. Uh, digital has benefited tremendously from, uh, from election cycle advertising dynamics. So that will, uh, you know, will help them, I think over the next, uh, over the next year or so, It'll be interesting to see what happens with, to, to your point, the, the bigger uh, platforms. Um, e- even Amazon, with this announcement uh, that uh, we're that Trump wants to impose tariffs on the other three hundred billion of dollars of Chinese imports, now that right. has been delayed uh, for a few months to to help with the holiday season. But if that does encompass all three hundred billion dollars that that aren't uh, subject to some of the higher tariffs right now that includes things like smartphones and sure that includes laptops that includes gaming consoles and the other the other dynamic about that is if you look at something like the game console market we import about five billion dollars in game consoles from china every year but that's about 98 percent of the game console market and so most of the game consoles that we're importing are coming from china and uh, and so a tariff will essentially impact the entire market for 
game consoles. You see similar dynamics with laptops and and uh, and smartphones that the the majority of those categories coming into the U.S. are are at least today coming from China, and so additional tariffs will will likely be passed through for those categories. And so, I, I think there is some real risk for in the near term for the holiday season, even without a recession, just given some of the, the dynamics at play right now. I, I understand your point about the political advertising, but I think it's going to be uh, a little bit different than, than it was, say, four years ago, uh, simply because there's going to be an incredible amount of scrutiny on Facebook uh, in, in yeah. terms of the political advertising. And, you know, they're, they're certainly still committed to carrying it. Uh, I think Google has been a bit more uh, willing to turn away some of that revenue. Um, uh, you know, they've made statements to that effect. Um, I'm not sure of the, the details of it. I, I, I don't think they're banning all political advertising. That doesn't seem to make sense. But, but certainly, especially with Facebook, uh, it's, it's, uh, they're really going to have to walk a, a very, very uh, thin tightrope there, uh, balancing the revenue upside and, and, the, uh, and the regulatory scrutiny um, uh, and their self-imposed scrutiny. So um, it, uh, it, it will definitely be, be interesting to see how, uh, how, how those campaigns shake out on, on social media. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Ross. And, and I think there's a, a lot of downside risk should uh, they, they you know, have to eventually disclose or it's revealed mm. that some of the same type of tactics were successfully employed on some of these platforms. There'll be potentially stiffer government penalties, whether those have much bite or not uh, will, will remain to be seen. But I think the public um, scrutiny that, that would take place and is could be very significant should that uh, be disclosed. So I, I think you're exactly right. Those will be things to watch for. Well, that's probably a good place to stop. Again, thanks for joining us for another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Don't forget to check the website for show notes and look for another new episode next week.